This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 21 of Inside COVID-19. South Africa, like many other countries around the world, has the end of lockdown on its mind. A lockdown that in this country costs 13 billion rands a day. And in this episode, we'll consider when and how that's likely to happen. Also, the Stanford University professor whose research suggests governments have massively overreacted to the virus. A counter of sorts from South Africa's leading scenario planner, Clem Sunter. And on a lighter note how man's best friend may end up saving the world from a confused post-lockdown future, with sniffer dogs being trained to identify those who are COVID-19 positive. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. First, as always, in the COVID-19 headlines today, the Stanford University report published on Friday continues to cause ripples around the world, raising questions about the true mortality rate of COVID-19 and whether governments panicked by shutting down economies to combat a virus that kills perhaps only slightly more than seasonal flu. Our business colleague Linda von Tilburg has cut the highlights from medicine professor and economics fellow Dr. Jay Bhattacharya who had a recent interview with a Stanford colleague. And we'll also have input on the matter in this episode from South Africa's leading scenario planner, Clem Sunter. The impact of COVID-19 on the shuttered airline sector was brought home today by global giant United Airlines, warning that it will report a $2.1 billion loss for the three months to the end of March. That's its largest since 2008. And things have got even worse since then. United says it will be applying to the U.S. Treasury for a $4.5 billion bailout. Here at home, South African Airways is teetering on the brink after government turned down a request for a 10 billion rand bailout and the airline's business rescue practitioners offered retrenchment packages to all its staff. Trade unions, however, are resisting the mass retrenchment offer and they are Many who have raised their voices saying this isn't the way to go. South Africa's process of testing for COVID-19 is gathering momentum with more than 6,500 people added yesterday taking the total to just over 114,700. Of those tested yesterday, 124 were found to be positive. That raises the country's confirmed infections to 3,158, a daily increase of 4%. Two more COVID-19 deaths were recorded on Sunday, taking that total to 54, equivalent to 0.36% of those tested and 1.7% of confirmed infections. On a brighter note, the first shipment of NASPERS-sourced personal protective equipment arrived in the country from China today. It consists of 275,000 KN95 masks and 100,000 face shields. This is the first part of a 1.5 billion rand commitment by NASPERS, its partner Tencent and the Chinese government, with the PPEs 
to be used to protect South African health workers. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Well, the big story all over the world at the moment is what happens to a country when it emerges from lockdown. Ron Whelan is the Discovery Health Chief Operating Officer. And the last time we spoke, Ron, you accurately predicted that the lockdown would be extended until the end of April. Uh, so now, of course, the question is what happens next? Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for the, the compliment, Alec. Yeah, it's uh, one of the few predictions we probably got right over the last year, six or eight weeks or so. Yeah, COVID's been such a challenge for all of us and it's such a dyna- dynamic thing to manage. Um, yeah, I think I think we've probably reached yeah, the the end of the line in terms of your hard lockdown, and I use the word your hard lo- hard lockdown yeah very selectively, because I think uh, when you begin to look yeah, globally, there is no real, it's not a binary in lockdown out of lockdown. I think yeah, it's a gradual um, your yeah, resumption of yeah, some some level of normal activity, normal activity, and yeah, when you look at um, you know, Germany, it's your yeah, gradual easing of restrictions. Spain, gradual easing of restrictions. Um, New Zealand's really interesting in that they got a four a four level response in, uh, in New Zealand. So their their highest level response is level four, uh, which is your know, hard lockdown, you know, similar to South Africa is at, you know, at the moment. Um, they're easing their lockdown back down to a level three, and you know, level three basically brings you back to um, a softer lockdown um, you know, and, a, and a new normal. Um, and effectively, we're not going back to to normal any any time soon. We've probably got a, a pretty rough three or four months ahead of us. Um, you know, so we haven't peaked you know, from a, an epidemic perspective. And it's anyone's you know, guess on you know, which you know, trajectory we're going to follow over the next you know, three to four months. Hopefully, you know, South Africa continues to um, you know, contain this epidemic and keep on a low trajectory. Um, but there's a, you know, there's a risk that you know, we're going to increase your infection rate. So for at least for the next you know, three, four, five months, you know, we're into a, a new normal. You know, we think you know, the new normal um, will have many of the same um, you know, sort of restrictions that you know, we've got now in terms of your know, social distancing, um, your know, restrictions on your know, mass gatherings and public gatherings. There'll be increased emphasis on tracking and tracing. There'll be increased emphasis on testing. And then, of course, you know, all of the preventive you know, elements will stay in place over the next you know, uh, you know, three to four months. Does it mean that people will be able to go back to work? You would know that you know, the mining sector, for example, is is you're back to 50% your capacity this week. And I think you will gradually see you opening up of your manufacturing and your various other sectors of the economy over the next uh, you know, the next few weeks. But I don't think it's going to be as binary as you know, we're going to switch it all back on you know, immediately. And there will definitely be restrictions around um, you know, social distancing and uh, you know, gatherings. Um, you know, and we're seeing that in many of the other countries as well. For example, where they're allowed to open, only allowed a certain number of patrons in, in restaurants. Um, your know, shops are only allowed a, a certain number of you know, people in their, in their shops. Um, there's you know, strict your temperature monitoring you know, and going into you know, re- retail locations. I think you know, we're moving into um, you know, a gradual relaxation of restrictions um, you know, with continued emphasis around you know, the, 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 you know, the healthcare interventions. Um, mm. So this is, a, this is a process rather than a, a switch on, switch off what's called a risk-adjusted strategy, and the government alluded to it it last week. What a risk-adjusted strategy basically means, in simple words, is a suppress-and-lift strategy. What that means is when infection counts, you begin to go up, um, and the the numbers mooted at the moment are, 
if infection counts go above new infections of greater than 100 a day, you put more restrictions in place. So what you do is you watch the number of the average number of new infections daily. And as soon as the average number of new infections daily go greater than you know, somewhere between 90 and 100 you know, for a sustained period, you then apply you know, increasing restrictions you know, around um, movement and mobility and um, you know, increasing your social, social distancing and spatial separation. As soon as your infections then drop below that you know, magic number of you know, 90 to 100, and, you know, ideally you want to get them to below sort of 50 or 60, you then lift the other restrictions again, and we'll you know, end up in this you know, dynamic you know, suppress and lift phase probably over the next you know, four, four to five months or so. And that's all a means for us to keep this low low trajectory in, you know, a trajectory in place. And but, as I mentioned, yeah. It, yeah. surely it depends on how many people you're testing. For instance, uh, I had a look in the latest numbers, and the, the tests were 6,500 of which about 145 uh, were positive. Now, if the tests go to 25,000, at pretty much any percentages, you're going to get more than 100 people who are going to be um, registering positive. Or am I missing a point here? Yeah, I guess yeah, that's said at the current testing level. So you're exactly right. Yes, the current testing level sits somewhere between five and 6,000 a day, and we begin to ramp, ramp that up over, over time. Um, yeah, this is a, a rough rule of thumb at you know, the, 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 yeah, the current testing levels. And you know, we'll adjust uh, the thresholds as you ramp up you know, the, you know, the, the, the testing. What you're trying to do is you're trying to you know, make sure that you are quickly moving in to contain you know, any you know, clusters of uh, you know, outbreaks across your communities. So you, you're kind of keeping your finger on, on, on the pulse of um, yeah, increasing infections in any any particular area. As soon as you're, you're seeing a rise in infections, then yeah, you, you're imposing your increased um, uh, yeah, restrictions again. Um, now that makes a lot of sense. So the 25,000 a day, which appears to be the target at the moment, once that starts coming in, there will be a realistic number of the new infections, and where they do break out. It's almost like uh, like in the body, you can focus on fixing that infection. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And Prof Karim alluded to, alluded to it in his presentation last week. He speaks about it as, as small fires, and you know, what you're trying to do is contain those you know, small fires. If you don't contain the small fires, what they do is they coalesce, and then you end up in a big outbreak, you know, similar to what we're seeing in, in Italy and um, and and in New York and the US here to some extent now. So it's a question of keeping on top of those small fires over the next um, you know, four, four to five months. It's very sensible, but we're also getting so much noise from the science around the world. Uh, on Friday, we had a Stanford University, a, a, an eminent professor of medicine and, and economics, telling us that the infection rates are, from his research and from the studies they've done, are actually not much higher than a normal seasonal flu uh, or the mortality rates, rather. Then, of course, we've got the whole BCG story, which you and I have discussed as well. Where do you go? Where do you go for your information? Ah, oh, yeah. There's a, like you say, there is a ton of information out there, and in many ways, you know, we're we're learning all of the time, um, you know, across the globe. And there's scientific you know, papers being put out, and there's um, your know, anecdotal evidence here you know, from your know, hospitals and your know, different your know, public health systems you know, across the globe and 
I mean, it is a, a, a mass of yeah, information. Um, yeah, as Discovery, you know, we have a, a, a full clinical excellence team that just scans the, the globe daily yeah, to look for the latest available clinical, clinical information, and that is yeah, treatment information, vaccine information. That's information around your mortality trends and incidence trends. Um, and you know, we're obviously you're staying as close as we can to you know, any emerging technologies that give us you know, any inclination on you know, how, how best to manage this. So you know, we rely you know, extensively on our on our clinical excellence team. And you know, and related to that, you know, we're doing um, a, a lot of you know, you know, in-depth you know, actuarial model predicting you know, what the medium to long-term trends you know, look look like on this. And it's a question of you know, pulling those pieces of information together to. To create as best possible picture of yeah, the other the, the, the situation. And what does it look like um, now? How well has South Africa done? I've seen some spectacularly good uh, graphs from various uh, places around the world that, in fact, we flattened the curve sooner even than South Korea. Yeah, I mean, South Africa has done an amazing job. I mean, you know, credit to everyone involved in the response here. You know, government, you know, the private sector, the public at large, and I think you know, the public needs to take a, a lot of credit for um, you know, flattening the curve you know, over the last you know, four weeks in South Africa. It, it, re- it really has been an amazing job. And uh, you're right in saying, in fact, yeah, our curves are flatter than you know, the initial stages of um, Australia and your know, Korea. Um, and yeah, the, South Africa has beaten all of our initial forecasts for April, and you know, I'm delighted that you know, all of our forecasts have been wrong, wrong for April. It's given us time to respond to this, uh, uh, to prepare uh, our response to the epidemic. I think you know, the, the the reality is that um, we will still have you know, infections, you know, and uh, we're, we're not. This is a a flattening of the curve over a sustained period of time. It's not a question of getting over an initial hump. You know, we've actually got to sustain this momentum over the next you know, four to five months at least. You know, people will continue to get infected, similar to seasonal flu. People will begin to build up your know, herd immunity, and your know, herd immunity then you know, translates into herd immunity over time. Every year we get a different strain of flu, and that's why we get reinfected by flu, because it's a slightly different you know, strain. So we will build up your know, herd immunity over time. I think you know, the, the challenge you know, with COVID is that these infections are on top of, of an existing um, you know, disease burden that comprises a range of your know, chronic diseases. It also comprises you know, trauma and accidents and um, you know, cancer and all of the things that go on top of that. COVID comes on top of all of these uh, diseases. So, um, and that's that's the, the the real challenge. When you, you look at some, if you look at the stats coming out of um, you know, London and New York you know, as an example, the real challenge those healthcare systems are facing: your know, death is 30% higher than it was you, you know, in previous years. So you've got 30% more deaths in previous years than you do have you know, in this year, and that's your know, consistent across you know, both London and and New York at the moment. And that's where the you know, the challenge comes in: is if you've got 30% your more um, your hospital admissions, 30% more ICU admissions, 30% your more deaths. That's where you know, um, COVID puts a significant your burden on your know, on our healthcare system, and that's the reason you know, we've got to keep it as as low low as possible. Gradually, you know, build up your herd immunity, but this is going to take you know, many many months for us to to drive through. That all said. There are a number of variables at play here, and you know, as you, you rightly mentioned, it's, it's, not, it's still not clear you know, 
how, how infectious is this? You know, what portion of the population will, will get, you know, uh, get infected by COVID over time? You know, what the actual mortality rate is? Not a hundred percent, you know, clear. We're obviously getting lots of stats and we'll get increasing your numbers. I think you're coming out of the, the U.S. experience now in particular that will help us understand this uh, better. Ron Whelan with some very sensible insights. Uh, he is the Chief Operating Officer of Discovery. Inside COVID-19, Compass News. A Stanford University professor of medicine who also has a doctorate in economics, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, is questioning the conventional wisdom on COVID-19 mortality rates being used by governments all over the world to model their responses. After releasing research on Friday, the Ivy League University professor said the true mortality rate is likely to be orders of magnitude lower than the World Health Organization's initial estimate of over 3%. Dr. Bhattacharya says his research shows deaths are much closer to the 0.1% of seasonal flu. In a follow-up on Friday to a widely accessed YouTube interview with his colleague, Hoover Institution fellow Peter Robinson, he says the results of his study suggests governments should rework their models and their policies that they have adopted towards COVID-19. We drew a sample of people from Santa Clara County uh, basically using a Facebook targeted ad strategy. We looked at uh, basically about 3,200 people in this drive-through testing uh, facilities that we set up on the fly. And uh, so, yeah, so they took the, the, the finger prick and then we just looked to see if the finger prick test showed evidence of antibodies to COVID-19. Why is that important? Because those antibodies implied very strongly that you had COVID-19 previously, some, some sort of infection with SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is the technical way to put it. 2.8, somewhere between 2.8 and 4%, which doesn't sound like a lot. Somewhere between 96 and 98% of people haven't got. We figured out about somewhere between 2.8 and, and 4, 4% of Santa Clara County has had evidence of COVID infection. Okay, so what does that mean? So first thing, right around the time when we were doing the study, there had been about a 1,000 cases of, of COVID infection, active SARS-CoV-2 infection found within the county. There's about 2 million people in the county. If 4% have it, have evidence of infection, that means that there's about 85 times more people who've had it per person that actually identified having it. That's the critical finding. Yeah, or fi- and if it's the, on the low end, it'd be 2.8, it'd be 50 times. So for every single person that the healthcare system in Santa Clara County is identified as having the virus actively in them, there are 50 people out there who had it and that never showed up with a test, a positive test. The COVID infection is substantially more common in the population than, than we'd realized prior to the study. So it's not as deadly as we might have thought. If 50 people had it for every person that, that we've identified having it, well, previously we were counting the number of deaths. We divide by the number of people we think have it. And we say, okay, gosh, 1%, 2%, somewhere between you know 1% and 2% of people who have it die. But if there's 50 people who had it and cleared it, then you, you get a much lower fraction, uh, death rate. Now, it's, there's some more nuance to that calculation that's not, not worth going too much into. 
Uh, the bottom line is that once you do that nuance, it's probably about as deadly as the flu or a little bit worse per case. Well, instead of having a death rate of, like the World Health Organization said, three in a hundred. So you get COVID and three out of a hundred people die. Instead, where our estimates suggest about somewhere between one and two in a thousand die. A lot of the people that have it probably never knew that they had it, have it and cleared it. And they could have infected other people very easily. It is very infectious, as you say. Even when you're totally asymptomatic. Yeah, I mean, it's, not, it's I think it's less likely that you'll spread it if you're asymptomatic, but it's possible. I think part of the issue is that, as we talked about last month, the tests themselves are relatively new. And I've learned a lot about the characteristics of these tests and the errors they have in the course of doing this research. It's stuff that people didn't know. I mean, I didn't know a month ago. The worry about the error rates of these tests have slowed down some of the spread of these kinds of studies. Obviously, it hasn't slowed everybody down, but uh, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe I'm foolish to have gone, gone, gone ahead. But I think it was the right thing to do because I believe this is critically important information, even though I know the tests are going to get better as better research gets done on them by immunologists all over the country. I'm rushed ahead because I think this, this number it will help make policy an early version of this number, even if it's a little more error prone than a late version of this number with better tests, is, is incredibly important is my, is, is my view. We'll see. I mean, I, I hope that people take this number and start to, you know, put into their models a better and more accurate picture of how extensive this, uh, this epidemic actually is. And I think they will. Your advice for a few officials. If we could, um, sit each of these down in your office and you could give them a sentence or two of advice, what does that imply? One, run these studies everywhere and keep running them until the epidemic's done. I mean, otherwise we're making policy on the basis of no information, no real information uh, or very little real information. The the second thing is redo the models. Like you've seen these models about flattening curve, redo them once we have these studies. Take a very close look at, at the resources of the hospital resources available and ask if I lift the caps, will I really stress the hospital systems or not? We could follow the same structure of the policy we've following, except now with real numbers. It could be that many, many places around the country, uh, including California, it's safe to lift the caps. So the next step to me is run the studies everywhere, redo the models and take a hard look and ask, is it really worth it? to suppress the economy if I'm not going to stress the, the hospital systems and, and have COVID-19 patients die as a result of it. Nearly every country on earth has implemented these kinds of economic caps. The, the macroeconomic numbers are incredibly, the global ones, incredibly scary. I mean, it looks like a, a great depression. It looks like on that order. And the health effects of that and the United States are going to be bad. In poor countries and, and in poor people in poor countries, it's going to be absolutely catastrophic. Those lives count for something, and they should count for something, I think, in the calculus. And uh, they're not counted right now in the calculus. We're just counting COVID deaths. These seroprovence studies everywhere, they're not that expensive. Don't worry about the fact that the tests aren't perfect yet because they're, they're good enough to get numbers that will guide policy right now, and we desperately need to do that so that we can actually do, do, start to do the right thing. It's not, it's not that I should be careful. I don't mean to say that they were doing the wrong thing. I mean to say that we'll now f- start to have inf- enough information so that we can figure out what the right thing is. I mean, these studies are really, really critical. I think weighing the effects on, of this shutdown policy or on other on non-COVID deaths should also weigh on, on President Trump's mind as well.
right? Those those lives matter too, right? The health and health and well-being of those people matter as well. Uh, that are thrown out of work, that, that that die of depression, all of those really bad things. Those lives count. President Trump, I say, count both those, both the lives of the people that are dying, dying from COVID and the people that are going to be dying from the depressions. It's not going to go away. And suppressing the economy forever so that it goes away seems like it's too costly. I mean, it is too costly in lives. So the the question is like, what do we, what do we do about it? I mean, we're, it's it's like we're going to have to learn to live with it, in some sense. I mean, if it's a one in a thousand risk of dying from getting it, we could learn to live with it, right? If it's if it's three in a hundred, maybe not. But the ultimate aim is to reduce this, to contain it the way we have contained what we think of as the ordinary flu. Is that the correct hope? Yeah, that's my hope. And and also that better treatments can become available. All of that is is fine. It's just the question is, do we shut everything down until that happens? I mean, the only reason you would ever you, you would do if it was a three in a hundred death rate, you might do that. If it's one in a thousand and you know there's deaths on the other side of the policy, then you wouldn't do that. That's hello to Clem Sunter. Nice talking with you always, Clem. Uh, you've updated your scenarios that uh, we spoke about. Well, the, the the one that you put together at the beginning of March, and interesting to see that you've added a new scenario to this. Yeah, the, the, the reason is simple, that you are seeing governments now making genuine attempts to get over the epidemic. I called the scenario tightrope because it really is a very difficult exercise for them because they've got a balance uh, on the one hand, not diving into a depression because of basically shutting down the global economy, uh, which was already in a vulnerable state before they shut it down because of the amount of debt around, and unleashing another round of the coronavirus, which then elevates the pandemic to something approaching what happened in the last century with Spanish flu. So it's it's a tightrope, and I, I call it the tightrope scenario. I think that markets at the moment are fairly positive that it can be done, but it's going to be trial and error as, as we see what you can open up without starting the whole virus off again. When you put together your original scenarios, it was a very, very different world. 100,000 infections, 3,000 deaths. It's now 2.0, nearly call it 2.5 million infections, more than 150,000 yeah. deaths. So it really has continued uh, a pace. But on the other hand, the science has become very noisy. Uh, where are you looking to get the right kind of messages from what all the scientists are throwing at us? The answer is, Alec, you, you, you just don't know. I, I mean, I troll around all the Internet sites and I, re- I read the newspapers and I read specialist articles, but there's just so much uncertainty around about the true nature of this virus. You, you can start with the number of asymptomatic cases and research in California, uh, which apparently shows that the, the, the number of people infected could be 50 or 80 times what is actually shown in, in cases. But that's a small sample, so you hold it in your mind, but you don't know whether it's uh, correct or not. People have talked, particularly those who've suffered from the virus, of 
you know, having side effects uh, from the virus. And again, it just hasn't been around enough for us to judge what long-term side effects there are. And probably most important, there has been news that some people have been reinfected. And uh, that would be huge if that is the case, because, of course, uh, it means that you're not immune after infection. Fortunately, we're, we're, we're in a stage of instant news, and it's very, very difficult at the moment to, to know what to believe and what not to believe. Yeah, I've heard a number of times a scientist telling me that science does not work at the same pace as the news cycles. <laughs> I guess we've got to get used to that. <laughs> but I, I feel that there's more validity to this than just being overdone by uh, the press. Because we have seen these incredible scenes in New York and to a certain extent in England of really overcrowded hospitals and ICUs. And you don't see that with common flu. And, and so for me, that, that is a real difference that you have seen chaos in uh, ICU units. And also there's been a shortage of, of the protective equipment. And that never occurs with, with annual flu. So, you know, I just feel this is more real. Now, whether... Governments have overreacted by shutting everything down. That is a different question because, of course, a lot of people quote Sweden, but, but it didn't shut itself down. Um, it told people to socially distance and, and a few other things, uh, but they sort of carried on as usual. And if you actually look at their fatality rates and uh, infection rates, they're not that much higher than other Scandinavian countries and indeed uh, other European countries generally. So that, that I'm sure is going to be debated as to whether you could have gone the Swedish route of, you know, hoping that uh, there were a lot of undetectable cases and that eventually you achieve herd immunity and you don't close your economy down or whether you have to go the route that, that countries like Italy and Spain, France and England and America have gone, which is you, you shut the place down. That is going to be hotly debated, I'm sure, uh, when the pandemic is over. But including in our country, where we do have a lockdown that ends at the end of the month, if you were advising the government, Clem, what would you be saying to them now about the lockdown? Well, I, I certainly wouldn't be asking them to lift it before the end of the month. What I would be doing there is saying to the government, what is going to happen for the, you know, the few weeks afterwards in terms of returning to a semblance of, of normality? What are we all expected to do? I see that they've published it both in America and the UK, the kind of three phases that will happen after lockdown in order for the economy to recover. We should be doing exactly the same. In other words, you've got to prepare companies, small businesses, individuals, old people, whatever, for what comes after lockdown because at the moment everybody's sitting in their homes and they're not sure what they're going to do come the day that the lockdown is lifted. And so I would be advising the government to be coming up with the same kind of information that people are getting in America and the UK of exactly what kind of behavior they expect from different communities, business community and from, uh, and, and from individuals post the lockdown. And it should be done now so that we can prepare ourselves. I suppose also we have at least got some other countries that we can watch who are a little ahead of us in the unlocked down curve. 
I do not have a very good idea of how Denmark is going about it, how New Zealand is going to go about it next week. Germany apparently is on the news today that they're uh, going to allow sh- uh, shops to open. I'm not sure that we're going to have that many examples uh, by the the end of April. I mean, the only example is China. And, you know, basically China locked everybody down and then has has had a very organized lifting of, of restrictions. But that's because it's a, a one-party system in China. I, I just feel that a, a democracy like ourselves will be following, you know, more the example of America or or, or Europe, and we haven't got a good example yet of what happens um, post-lockdown in terms of opening restaurants, opening pubs, and, and, and what are the rules of social distancing going to be? And it's all still up for grabs. And so I do believe we've got to start having that conversation now. And I, I get back to, to one point, which is you can't rule out that this is a very nasty virus, and the last scenario you want is for it to come back again in a second wave. And and so the way we get out of lockdown is about walking a tightrope of just opening up, but just make sure you don't sort of fall into a second wave of the ep- epidemic. And that's going to be a delicate balancing act. And we need information about how to perform in that uh, delicate balancing act. And and we haven't got it at the moment. So hopefully Cyril will meet with the, all the medical people as well as business people and, and come out with a manual on how to proceed forward after lockdown. As promised, we close this episode with a story about man's best friend. Could dogs be trained to detect COVID-19? Well, they certainly think so at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Disease, where a training program has started. Our colleague Linda von Tilburg tracked down the head of the program, Professor James Logan, who also heads the school's Department of Disease Control. So we've done a lot of work over the last sort of 10 to 15 years uh, looking at the effect of infection on, on body odour. So, for example, we know that when you're infected with malaria, uh, your body odour changes and that makes you more attractive to mosquitoes. So mosquitoes can pick up on that change in body odour and find you more attractive when you have malaria. And we thought we can use mosquitoes to find out what the chemicals are, but using dogs that can learn smells and also have a, a really amazing ability to smell, to detect smells, we decided to try this out. And we found that dogs can detect malaria with extremely high accuracy. You know, dogs are used already in circumstances to detect medical conditions. Um, We've demonstrated they can do it with malaria, and we thought if they can do it with those diseases, can they do it with COVID-19? So how has your research on that progressed? So we're still at a very early stage. We've got to demonstrate that COVID-19 does have a distinctive odour. We've got good reason to believe that it does, and if it does, we're confident that the dogs would be able to learn that smell and detect it. But obviously there's a lot of considerations when doing a study like this. We've got to consider obviously the welfare and safety of the animals and all the people involved as well. So we are currently getting the approvals that we need and we're also fundraising. So we have a crowdfunder on Indiegogo for COVID dogs. 
and we're, we're looking to raise um, enough money to support the trial to demonstrate that the dogs can do this. So hopefully once we've got that, within four to six weeks, the dogs can be trained uh, and then we'd be ready to be deployed. And we think that each individual dog can up to 250 people per hour. Would this be detecting COVID-19 before it's actually a symptom, so people might not even be aware that they have it? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And it, it's really important that uh, we have a method to detect people who don't have any symptoms, because obviously those who have symptoms are going to know about it and will hopefully be following the guidelines of self-isolating or be admitted to a hospital. But um, it looks as if there are lots of people who don't have any symptoms at all. Um, and there are people who obviously are infected, possibly infectious before symptoms develop. Um, and it's those people that we would want to be able to detect. If you can train the dogs like this, where would they be deployed? At airports? Yes, yeah, so we would be looking at deploying the dogs um, at airports, and that would probably be the, or other ports of entry, that would be the, the main place for them. Basically, we want this to be a, a screen of lots of people, a, a high throughput screen. As I said, we can get uh, up to 250 people per dog screened. In the UK at the moment, um, with the charity medical detection dogs that we're working with, we've got six dogs that are ready to go um, and be trained. But airports are the main the main place that we see this uh, being deployed. Yeah. Would people with COVID-19 be able to transmit the disease to their pets? Are you worried about that? So there have been some reports in the press that some dogs have become infected or, or have or the, the virus has been detected on the dogs. There's not really any evidence that the dogs are becoming infectious or becoming ill. And in fact, a study that was published recently demonstrated that dogs are, are really not susceptible, um, whereas cats are. We, we don't believe that there's a high risk. Obviously, the welfare of the dogs is absolutely paramount. Um, and, you know, the standards of the work that we're doing with medical detection dogs is extremely high. And um, we take it very seriously. So we're working with, with vets who obviously oversee what we do as well. Um, and in the training phase, uh, we will be using extracts of body odour. So dogs won't be coming into contact with anything infectious at all. And then on, when the dogs are, de are deployed, we would be looking at the dogs detecting from people without having to contact them. Because this, these are airborne, um, the dogs should be able to do it without any sort of contact. What kind of dogs do you use for this kind of training? The breed of dog can vary. We have, so medical detection dogs has Labradors and Spaniels um, and some uh, mixes as well. I think there's a Labrador cross poodle. We're ready to go. Um, but it's dogs that have a really good ability to smell, um, but also that have good ability to, to learn and be trained as well. So these dogs are very carefully selected. So, you know, unfortunately, we can't just sort of use everybody's pets. Um, but we but we use dogs that are you know trained these are working dogs um, they all live um, at home with their owner um, and they come in and, and do their job and go back home again if it's a successful trial it could be used elsewhere in the world yeah absolutely so obviously we're doing the proof of concept trial here in the UK um, but we're talking to various agencies from around the world um, who have already shown interest in this and um, what part of what we're doing will be to develop a, an operational plan for scale up so that we would be able to work with agencies in other countries uh, who can um, use the same methodology to train dogs and, and deploy them 
um, within other countries as well. So if this is successful, this could be used pretty much anywhere. So is there the assumption that this is not a pandemic that's going to blow over and this is actually something that might be with us for longer? I think it's very clear, you know, this is not going to disappear within the next couple of weeks. This is going to be around for for quite a long quite a long time. And, you know, we have to be very cautious about what happens when measures are lifted, you know, when, when you know, lots of countries are in what's being termed lockdown at the moment. And when those measures are, are lifted, there's a, a chance that the disease can reoccur and there could be another peak of infection, for example. So, you know, any sort of method that we have to screen large numbers of people, and particularly at ports where people will be coming in and out of countries, is going to be very useful. This has been episode 21 of Inside COVID-19. You can access every episode by subscribing on Spotify or iTunes or by downloading the Biz News Podcast app in the Apple App Store. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.